only pay money for the value they perceive they're gonna get. And so I could always lower my price to the point where I could get you to buy my product. And I could always raise, well, not always, but hopefully I could raise my, your perception of the value of my product to where you think it's greater than my price. So in every purchase, it's price and value. Everyone. Hi, friends. Welcome to the Sales Enablement Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Paul. How's Mark Stiving? Mark is founder and chief pricing educator at Impact Pricing. And he's the host of a podcast titled Impact Pricing, on which I was honored to be a guest. And in our conversation today, Mark and I dig into the whole topic of value. Value as it relates to the buyer and as it relates to the seller. We talk about the different types of value, such as inherent value, relative value, economic value. And we dive into how each of these are important to understand from the perspective of your buyer. Mark further shares the four value-based characteristics of buyers that sellers should look for. And we get into how buyers trade off price for value. I mean, they know the price, they don't know the value. And they have to guess or estimate how much value they expect to receive. And as Mark says, this becomes the holy grail of selling value because this is what you can influence. So we get into all of this and much, much more. But before we get to Mark... I want to remind you to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. So let's jump into it. Mark, welcome to the show. Thank you, Andy. This is going to be fun. Yeah, I, I believe it will be. Yes. So um, people who aren't familiar with you, tell us a bit about you and what you do. Well, first off, since this has to do with sales, I'll tell you that I'm not a sales expert. I am a horrible salesperson. So let's just get that out of the way. Um. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. We, yeah. Uh, yes, it's not only a sales show, but we cover a lot of topics that are of importance to sales, but aren't necessarily sales technique and tactics. Yes. Nice. Well, I am a pricing expert. And uh, and I look, if I have a superpower, mm-hmm. my superpower happens to be being able to tell what customers value. Okay. And I think this is one of the most important things that salespeople could learn. So if you want to, let me tell you about me for a second, if I may. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, so, please. so I picture me being 12 years old, walking through a grocery store, seeing cans of green beans for 69 cents. <laughs> and I always wondered, why do people put nines on the end of prices? Right? Do, right. They, do they think we're stupid? Right? I, I know that's 70 cents. You don't have right. to try to trick me. Right, right. So, you know, 20 years later, I find myself in a doctoral program at UC Berkeley, and I get a chance to play with scanner panel data. Mm-hmm. Now, this is the data that uh, Nielsen collects when you use your loyalty card. Right. So we know what you bought, how much you paid, what you didn't buy, what that cost, whether there was an endile display, an ad in the newspaper. There's all sorts of stuff we know. And, and I could statistically determine whether nine cents actually works. And did it? It does. It really does work. <laughs> we all sort of intuitively think it does, but yeah. Well, then I, I spent a bunch of time testing different models to see if I could figure out why it works. And it turns out the reason it works is because we are lazy subtractors. So if I gave you two prices like, you know, 78 and 53 cents, you would look at those and say, that's about 20, uh, 20 cent difference. Right. That's turns out it's 25. Right. And, and if I gave you two prices like uh, 83 and 58 cents, you'd say, oh, that's about a 30 cent difference. Turns out it's 25. Right. And so if you're going to ignore the right-hand digits when you do subtraction, why wouldn't every company just put nine Nine. as the right-hand digit? There's your profits right there. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) So I became addicted to learning how people use price to make decisions. 
it's just such a fascinating topic to me. Once I started mastering more of that, then I started realizing how is it that companies use that information so they can make better decisions to set pricing. Right. It turns out it is always, always, how does a customer value our product? How are they perceiving value of our product? Mm -hmm. And once you get that totally ingrained in your head and you start thinking about B2B companies, you realize the single place where we get to communicate our value to our customers is with our sales teams. Mm -hmm. Our customers don't really know what they value. I guarantee you our salespeople don't know what our customers value. And I that's why I wrote this. That's why I wrote this third book. It's called Selling Value. And it's all about teaching sales, but pretty much everybody in the company, but in my mind, it was sales on how is it that customers perceive the value of your products? So value, well, so value has become a bit of a cliche, I think, in sales, right? God, yes. I mean, <laughs> everything uh, you know, assigned the word value pretty much. Um, now you talk about, you know, inherent value and relative value, and we'll dig into those. But after we do is, you know, I want to sort of dive into this question is, are there intangible forms of value that also come into play in the decision? Okay. So, so let's start with inherent value and relative value. Can I take a step back before that? And I will oh, sure. absolutely, absolutely hit those, absolutely, right? Absolutely, yes. so, so the first thing is when I think of value, the, you, you, by the way, you're absolutely right. The word value means so many different things to so many people. Everybody, you ask any salespeople if they sell value and they say, yeah, I sell value. Oh, yeah. Right. Absolutely. Everybody thinks that. Right. So now the question becomes, what does value really mean? And there are so many different definitions. One of the definitions that I dearly love is economic value. How much mm -hmm. money are you going to make your customer because they buy your product, right? And that's perfectly yep. measurable, right? That That's yes. the dollar value. Now, that's well, not their willingness to – It's forecastable, let's say. Yes. Right? I mean, it's, it's measurable after the fact, but forecastable up front. Yeah, right. Yes, yes, absolutely. And then the other one that I love a lot in terms of value is I define value as what's a customer willing to pay. And willingness to pay – has a lot to do with how much value, how much economic value they're going to get from your product. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. So now let's jump into inherent value versus relative value. Right. Inherent value is what's the value of solving the problem. If you're going to go buy something, I don't care what it is as a consumer, as a, as a business, if you're going to go buy something, the reason that you're buying it is because you believe it has more value than the price you have to pay for it. Mm hmm. Right. And, and so if we go back to economic value as a company, I'm only going to buy something for a hundred thousand if it makes me at least a hundred thousand more in profit. Right. Right. Preferably about a million more in profit, but it better be at least a hundred thousand or I'm not going to spend that. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and when I'm coaching companies on pricing, I usually coach them to look for that 10 to one ratio. So if I'm going to make you as a buyer a million dollars, I should expect you to pay me a hundred thousand. That and seems so reasonable. Where's that rule come from? Uh, it just comes from experience. I've seen it in the tech space over and over and over again. Uh, it, oftentimes what we're doing is we're asking our buyers to do something they've never done before. We're asking them to take a risk 
on something new that we're offering. And that risk says you're getting 90% of the return. I'm getting 10% of the return. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, if I were selling you gold bricks, I would never do a 10 to one ratio, right? I'm going to, I'm going to take 99.9% and I'm going to give you a tiny little margin on that. It has everything to do with the amount of risk we're asking our customers to take. Okay. Agree. Right. Okay. So that's inherent value. But now let's assume I've convinced you that it's a million, that you're going to make a million dollars when you buy my product. I sell it to you. I, I offer it to you for a hundred thousand and there's a competitor next door who says, Oh no, 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 I'll sell it to you for 50,000. So now we've got one competitor offering a product at 50 K. I'm offering it a hundred K. Why would you ever buy my product? This is where relative value comes in. What is the value of my product relative to my competitor's product? What are the things I do differently? What are the problems that I can solve that they can't solve? What's the dollar, the economic value of the problems that I can solve that they can't solve? Mm -hmm. And if I can't justify, in this case, since we're a 50K difference, I usually want at least a 2X difference here. Right. So, so if I can't show you I'm going to deliver at least 100K more value to you, you're probably buying from my competition. Okay. I love the fact that you're thinking right now. I can just see it. <laughs> <laughs> well, but I was just thinking about something else that Jude had written that we're going to bring up later, but I'll also bring it up now is this idea of, um, especially we're talking about relative value in large swaths of, let's say, the SaaS world, the software world. You have markets with you know, literally dozens of competitors, and I contend that they're all products are all, in the eyes of the buyer, and the buyer surveys have sort of shown this is that the products are largely indistinguishable for one from the other. So this idea of relative value is sort of really curious because they're all sort of priced relatively the same, right? Um, I got to tell you, I think that's a huge mistake from the vendors, the software vendors' perspective. A huge mistake to to do what? To price it to the same? To price or? them the same, to have the same products. And and I would also argue what? that I if you- I don't disagree, by the way, but sort of, sort of what's out there. But anyway, go ahead. I was going to say, if you have a direct sales force, the whole purpose of a direct sales force is to help the buyer understand the value of my product mm. relative to the other alternatives. Right. And and so if if we, let's say product managers, marketing people, if we don't know how our product is different from our competitors, how can we help our salespeople know that? If oh, our yeah. salespeople don't understand, because they're covered, they're usually selling way more products than we're managing, right? Yep. So, so, so if our salespeople haven't been given the, here's what you're looking for in terms of when you go up against this competitor, these are the problems we solve that are better. Does that buyer have these problems? Can we help them quantify the value of those problems to them? And now we're justifying the fact that our product is more expensive. I, I like to work with companies whose products are more expensive. Sure. Right? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, me too. It's, it's, but it's this is really the sort of nub of a problem, especially in I said, software sales these days. Is buyers are confronted by waves of products and vendors that that don't 
substantially differentiate or just even given sort of the nature of the industry is if anybody has something, a feature <laughs> today, hey, within you know the next rev of the software, everybody's going to have that feature, right? I mean, it's, it's, so it's really hard to sort of sustain any sort of meaningful differentiation. So you talk to customers and they're like, hey, they're basically all virtually the same. And so it does, to your point, it does point ultimately to the salesperson to say, well, okay, how can we create this vision of value that is differentiated in the mind of the buyer? And that's, this is one of the huge gaps, I think, that exists in, in B2B selling today. Yeah, and, and I love the pushback you're giving. And, and I want to try, I'm going to try to push back against your pushback. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Please do. So we've got B2B buyers out there who are looking at a half dozen different software applications and they say, oh, they're all pretty much the same. But it turns out that these buyers really don't know. They're just using whatever they read on a web page, whatever somebody told them. Gartner says, oh yeah, all these guys are in the magic quadrant, go use mm -hmm. them. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and yet I guarantee you there are differences in those products. I guarantee you there are differences in those companies and the support and the service they do. Oh, yeah. The question becomes, are we as a company able to explain that to our buyers in a way that resonates with the buyer? And that's what I get at when I talk about selling value constantly. Mm -hmm. It's understanding what is the buyer thinking. And if they're really looking at a half dozen, what they're looking at is, how are you different? How are you better? Why am I going to pay you more? Or why am I even going to choose you over those other people? And we need to know, uh, I'll put this in the phrase that I always use, right? I, I put it in value tables and you say to me, well, we have this feature and our competitors don't have this feature. I, I got to tell you, nobody cares, right? Nobody cares that you have a feature. Mm -hmm. What they care about is that your feature solves a problem that they have that problem, if they can solve it, yields some measurable result. And if you have any business acumen at all, you can take that measurable result and turn it into economic value to the buyer. And that's what selling value actually means. Mm -hmm. Tell me how you're different and let's turn that into dollars in the customer's pocket. Right. And where I was coming from was, which I, and I agree, is, is you maybe or may not have seen these statistics, but you know, the percentage of B2B sellers that hit their quota every year has been sort of falling fairly precipitously over the last 10 plus years. Uh, win rates, you know, percentage of highly qualified opportunities that sellers are winning, especially in the software space, is down around 20% or less. I mean, there's a book that came out earlier this year, it wasn't specifically about software, saying, you know, in the B2B world, for deals 100k and higher, which I would consider sort of you know medium price stuff. This was based on a survey of over 14,000 buying enterprises. Average win rate was 17%. So sellers, in my mind, I'll, I phrase it this way: sellers are doing such a poor job of being able to articulate value or influence choices and trade-offs the buyers make that that uh, you know, result in a value proposition that they can't even win one of every five deals. Okay. As a statistician, let me, let me reframe that for you for just a sure, second. Sure, please do. Right? Let's pretend that the buyers used to look at three vendors for each opportunity, and now they look at five vendors for each opportunity. Yeah. 
when they were looking at three vendors for each opportunity, the average win rate, win rate was 33%. When they look at five Actually, um, vendors, the average win rate is 20%. Uh, gosh, I'll have to think about that. Cause I'm not sure I agree with that. I would, I think one of the, one of the stats that is that I think that the sales managers impose a pipeline coverage ratio on sellers and their win rate is the reciprocal of their pipeline coverage requirements. So if they have a five X pipeline coverage requirement to, to meet their number in a month, uh, yeah, they'll win yeah, one out of every five. I'm not sure what's what's the correlation with the number of vendors the buyers look at because they could look at you know dozens literally. Right, but but the key is if I'll, let's just do one for a second, right? I have one customer that's going to buy. They go out and look at five different vendors. One of those vendors won, and four of them lost. Yeah, and and so if you do that. 10 times, right? There were 10 purchases and 30 not 30 losses. So by definition, that's well, I'm not sure that was I might have well, mixed up my numbers. What's what's to prevent somebody from winning 50% of their opportunities? They could, but that just means the other people, the other vendors are losing way more than the normal 20% or 17%. Yeah. And and so the average is still 17% or 20% or it's because that's the number of opportunities there are and the, and the average number of deals won. Okay. New it's perspective. Just, I'm going to have to think about that. Yeah. It's it's just stats from the backward side. Well, okay. I'd bless that. I'll have to think about that offline because I, I something's not calculating on that with me. Okay. Because because it's, it's sort of dried, right? But the fact is there's an assumption there that buyers are not influenced by things other than price and value. Uh, so one of the things that's interesting to me, and I, I don't have this in my book and I don't write yeah. about this or yeah. anything, but one of the things I find very interesting is buyers have to choose how much they want to search. They have to choose how much they want to work to get a deal. Absolutely. Uh, and uh, actually, in a way, I do write about this in my book. Can I can I talk about it? Because it's really fabulous. Sure. Well, and I was going to bring this up because you had somebody on LinkedIn sort of pose a question to you because you had written the faster quote response time leads to more sales. Uh, some buyers may buy just may just buy once they receive a reasonable quote, not wait for all requested quotes. And somebody wrote in response is, yeah, but do you have any data on that? So. There is data on that, but let's, let's, I want to go ahead. <laughs> well, sadly, that's not the point I was going to make. So I'm <laughs> going to switch to the point I really want to make because I, because I find this fascinating and hugely valuable to, to salespeople. Sure. Typically when a buyer buys something, we make two different purchase decisions. The first decision we make is, will I buy something in this category? Mm -hmm. So am I going to buy a new car? Yes, no. Well, if the answer is no, great, I'm not shopping. Mm -hmm. As soon as I say yes, then I switch to, well, which one am I going to go buy? And now I'm shopping BMW, Porsche, Lexus, you know, whatever the brands are that I, that I might consider and the styles inside there. So I'm now making a which one decision. When people are making a which one decision, they're very price sensitive. When people are making the will I decision, price isn't driving that decision. Something else is. 
Now, the reason this is so important is I guarantee you that every salesperson, every company has opportunities along the way where buyers only make a will I decision and never go on to make a which one decision. And when this happens, buyers are not price sensitive. So how do we do this? Whenever we're talking to a buyer, we start every conversation. Every, every time I meet a new buyer, I am only going to talk about inherent value. Well, let me I take am, a step back before you jump into that. So please. you said buyers that make a will I but never make a – Which uh, one? Which one? Mm-hmm. Now, when I hear that, what I think of is, well, okay, buyers that go through their buying process but make no decision in the end. Oh, no, 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 no. That's not what I meant. So glad you clarified that. Um, when you walk into the movie theater, you say to yourself, am I going to have popcorn today or not? Mm-hmm. You don't say, am I going to buy popcorn here or am I going to go to the grocery store right. and buy popcorn? Right? It's it's a will-I decision. Am I going to buy popcorn or not? Which is why popcorn is so ridiculously expensive <laughs> at the movie theaters. Right. Because right? Uh, there's no competitive alternative. Have you ever had someone say to you um, – Oh, you need to go hire this person to help you with your, I'll just make with your social media, right? Mm-hmm. And you say, Oh yeah, I, re- I need to. So you call the person up and you say, I need to hire you and you hire them. Right. And you don't go out and shop three or four or five different people for social media support. You just said, look, that's the one I was recommended. Mm-hmm. Right. These are will I only decisions. A competitive alternative was not considered. Right. Price doesn't drive the decision. Right. And that's what's so important here. Because if someone, if we can recognize when people are not making a which one decision, then all we ever talk about is the value of solving the problem. Mm-hmm. We never ever talk about how are we better than the, the alternative. In fact, the implication is there is no alternative, right? Nobody does what I do. Nobody does it right. as well as I do. And right. And so when you go to make your purchase, you're not price sensitive. I don't have to negotiate as hard. I don't have to discount as much. Yeah. The question then for the seller game. though is, can they really determine whether or not the buyer's <laughs> talking to anybody else? Yes, absolutely. So, right. so a, first off, when we're having the conversation, it's always about the value of solving the problem. Mm-hmm. And then here's the magic question that I would ask if I wanted to know if there was competition. If you don't buy this, what are you going to do? Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying what competitor are you going to go to? Who's else no, you going no, to buy? The cost it's, of not making a change. Right. What are you going to do? And they say, well, I'm going to not do anything. Okay, perfect. I know there's no competition. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm going to go buy from Jack down the street if I don't buy from you. Great. I right. know I've got competition. Got it. Of those two decision types, can you estimate you know, the percentage of decisions that are one versus the other? Um, no. I can tell you that – for traditional transactional type sales, the majority are not will I decisions, right? Will I, the will I type where there's no competition is a smaller percentage. We need to be able to recognize them and make sure we're communicating the right type of value. Right. However, once we start thinking in terms of will I and which one, we start to recognize really interesting situations. So you bought my, uh, you bought my John Deere tractor from me. And now you want the uh, the plow that works with the John Deere tractor. Well, guess what? You're going to buy that from me. Mm-hmm. Of course. Right? Because yep. it's an add-on. Now, that's a will-I 
decision you're about to make. You're not, you're not saying, well, am I going to buy yours or am I going to go to Kubota and buy theirs? Uh, you're going to buy mine. Now, is it that cut and dry, though, between the two types? Let me give you an example. Is uh, 2018 Gartner published their buyer enablement study and they did, you know, talked to a couple thousand businesses, you know, mostly larger enterprises, I imagine. And they drew this picture of what the buying process looks like. And there's this complex, <laughs> they call it their spaghetti diagram because it looks like you took a handful of spaghetti and threw it against the wall in terms of how, how the process, the buying process actually took place. But it's hard. They said there were these four jobs that buyers got done. Now, Define the requirements or define the problem. Define the problem, identify solution, finalize your requirements, select a vendor. And what their research is showing is this idea of, of you know, which one was really like a third or fourth order decision. I was wondering how that sort of overlays with, with you know, what you're talking about relative to a will I or which one. Yeah, would you say it's fourth order as in less important, or would you say that's fourth order as in it comes last in the process? I think there are elements of both, quite frankly. Yeah, one of the things that I find as I talk to clients, as I talk to my clients in, in particular, is they don't understand what customers value. And I think that customers don't understand what customers value. Yes. Meaning if you go back to the Gartner example, to the very beginning where you say define the problem, I think that so few people do that well for themselves, for their, for their customers, for anybody, right? We don't really know what the problem is. I so if I, if I say I want to go buy some new pricing software, I haven't, I haven't really defined what the problem is that I want to go solve. I'm out shopping for pricing software without having a clue. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I agreed. I think throughout that process that Gartner outlined, I mean, the process I understand is when I can share the, link to the diagram afterwards, but yeah, I got this complex flow chart that's, you know, start and stops and starts all over and so on, but the heart, these four jobs. Yeah. I think, I think that's, you're absolutely right. I think sellers are generally pretty poor at that. And I think this is being able to help the buyer understand better what the problem is they're trying to solve. I think it's a form of differentiation that's meaningful to the buyer. Yeah. And in fact, when you do that, you are doing, you're helping the buyer understand the inherent value of your product. Because now what we're doing is we're identifying the buyer's problems. We're mm -hmm. helping the buyer uh, realize their own problems. Mm -hmm. And then we exactly. can start walking through from that problem set to what's, what's the dollar value of solving those problems, which is really powerful. Right. And, and, and so my thought process is always, um, we have to help sellers and buyers figure out what are the problems that we might solve? What are the results customers might achieve? And then how do we turn that into dollars for our customers? Yeah, exactly. So it gets back to a question I was asking earlier, though, is this, this idea of sort of less tangible forms of value for the buyer? Because in the challenger sale, you know, CEB at the time, Brent Adams and Matt Dixon, uh, I think the figure they had in there was, was either 53 or 56% of the buyer's purchase decision 
is based on their buying experience with the individual seller. And that speaks to some form of value that exists for the buyer to influence, you know, they set the trade-offs and the choices they made throughout their process, but the ultimate decision they make. And there's some research coming out of a company that uh, I know that has done thousands of in-person win-loss analyses with enterprises uh, around the world. And, you know, they've published a, a study on nine reasons why you win and nine reasons why you lose based on the results of all these, these interviews. And price really doesn't show up. So it's like there's these, and not to ignore the fact that, you know, pricing is not factored in, but it's like there's these other things that, that really influence buyer's decision and i think sellers are really unmindful of those things let alone the things you're talking about they're very you know much more concrete and i I said i think this is you know part of the reason sellers are struggling so much these days but anyway yeah so two quick comments on what you said yeah Uh, first first i'm going to tell you that price always shows up and i say that in the following sense Mm -hmm. people only pay money for the value they perceive they're going to get yes and so I could always lower my price to the point where I could get you to buy my product. And I could always raise, well, not always, but hopefully I could raise my, your perception of the value of my product to where you think it's greater than my price. So yeah. in every purchase, it's price and value. Everyone. But I could see why people don't say price because to me, it's kind of like the given. But now I want to talk about what you really said, and I hate this. Thank you so much for bringing this up, Andy. Oh, glad to help. Um, yes. <laughs> my entire life, I have been personality challenged and mathematically gifted. Mm-hmm. So, so to think about the business case and the dollars that we're going to put in a customer's pocket, oh, I just feel so comfortable talking about that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. And as soon as you say, well, well, salespeople have to be nice to their customers, too. And they have to smile at them and build a relationship. It's like, you know, there's lots of sales teams out there that can help you learn to do that. I am not someone who could help you with that. <laughs> <laughs> Which is not to say it's not important. It's just not your thing. Absolutely. And right. so I, I tend not to think about it too much, although I recognize that that uh, we can totally blow a sale by being an asshole. Right. And, and we can totally gain advantage by building rapport with the potential buyer or, and, and, or, <laughs> cause this is, this is part that drives me nuts is being able to demonstrate and yeah, show the value of your solution. Yeah. I, there's this interest on in your take on this. Cause there's, you know, there's studies have shown anywhere from I've seen multiple studies for either from 50% to 80% of qualified opportunities in B2B pipeline end up in no decision. What my experience has shown is that that happens when the seller never gets the buyer to the point of really understanding the value of their solution and how it's connected to the outcomes they want to achieve. I would agree a hundred percent. And I would actually, um, modify or add on to that just a little bit sure. and say it's the inherent value. Yes. Yes. Right. It's right. what's the value of solving the problem. Right. In fact, one, one of my favorite phrases is um, or favorite, favorite concepts. If you think about it, it as a salesperson, 
you have no idea how much value your customer is going to get from your product. Correct. And as a customer, you have no idea how much value you're going to get from the product. And the only way we figure that out is for the salesperson and the customer to work together to figure out what that value is. Mm-hmm. And, and that's exactly what I'm trying to do in selling value, uh, trying to teach salespeople how to, how to have this thing we call a value conversation, where together we can work to figure out what is the value of this to you and your company. Yeah. And I think this, and that's, there's a lot, to me, there's lots of elements to that, um, what that value story is, right? I mean, part of it is, is, as we said before, it's a projection, right? It's necessarily a projection of what, what could happen. And it's, I think good salespeople are those able to take the sort of, you know, cut, not, I'll say cut and dried projection of the value, the inherent value and combine it with a great story that puts the buyer in the picture with those, with those results that tend to be more able to influence outcomes for themselves. Yeah. What I, what I try to do with my clients and, uh, and what I try to teach people to do is I never walk in and say, oh, let me show you how I'm going to make you a million dollars. Exactly. Instead, I walk in and say, well, what are your problems? If, um, how do you measure that today? What do you think we could get it to? What do you think it would be worth if we could get it to that? And the customer just did all the math. Mm-hmm. I didn't do anything. Right. Right. Other than know what questions to ask. Yeah. Getting the, getting the buyer to quantify impact is, is yeah, it's a great way to have those conversations. Mm-hmm. Instead, yeah, most sellers lead with, well, we can do ABC. Wouldn't you like to do ABC? <laughs> it's like, uh, sure, why not? But what's that do for me, right? I don't remember, Andy, if I said this before we started or after we started, but I'll, I'll confess, I was a horrible salesperson. And uh, this was really early in my career. And I remember, I can look back and actually picture exactly what I would do as a salesperson. You know, I had my list of features and I'm rattling through and spewing mm-hmm. my list and, and I'm looking at my buyer's eyes and I'm hoping that they somehow brighten or something. And it's like, <laughs> oh, that's, that's the one, that's the one. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but that's you would think that we've evolved since then. I mean, and the answer is no. Right? Is is this whole idea of sellers pitch before they understand? And there's no. Well, I'm going to use the word. There's no value for that for the buyer. Doesn't help them understand their problem any better or understand potential outcomes they can achieve. It's just you. Yeah, talking to them. And this is what yeah. constitutes, you know, quote unquote, a sales conversation for too many sellers. It's, yeah, you, know, you have to. I don't know. I, I grew up in, you know, selling large systems, uh, big enterprises around the world. And but over time, I started to develop this, this vision is that, you know, buying process really took place in sort of three stages, just to really, because I love to simplify things. Uh, if you've read my books and, and, the first stage is what I call the what stage. What's our problem? You know, the only reason we're talking to salespeople is because we know that they might be able to ask us questions we don't know to ask ourselves to help us better understand our challenge and the potential outcomes we can achieve by addressing it. And so I think it, 
buyers early on are just in what I call this what stage. They're just trying to figure out what the problem is, what the potential outcomes could be, even pressure, what the value might, inherent value might be. But if you're coming in and you're just <laughs> spraying and praying, as many sellers do, it's just complete disconnect with them. Yeah, I, I think a great representation of that is how early do you demo your product? Because if you are demoing your product early, you'd have no clue what it is you're doing. Yeah. Unless you're using it as a discovery demo, which well, I've seen sellers do. It's quite effective. Um, but yeah, absolutely. And so then the you know, next stage is how? Okay, we define sort of the what, the problem and the goal and the inherent value that we want to achieve. Okay. How are we going to get that done? You know, we're talking to vendors, we're, we're evaluating alternative solutions, we're formulating options um, yeah. for how we, can, and, how we can solve it. And I've been inside companies where we make the build it or buy it decision exactly. on, on those exact problems. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's yeah, part of what they're, they're formulating. And I, and you've probably read stuff from Paul Nutt, you know, was writing about decision making mm -hmm. and, you know, talks about, yeah, sort of the end at this point, people aren't making decisions. They're making choices about how they can achieve this value that they want to achieve. And if you're a salesperson, at least from my perspective, I was always, well, when I knew when the buyer got to this stage, I always like to say, I'd like to have a, an Andy size hole in their final requirements document, right? That I just fit in. And then when they make the choice of which option they want to pursue and perhaps put out final requests to the vendors, I'm in the catbird seat at that point. Yep. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, I often think, in fact, in the book, I define three different value discovery journeys that buyers mm -hmm. go through. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and so you've also heard the statistic. I have no idea what the real number is, but let's just make it up and say 56%. <laughs> 56% of the purchase decision is made before salesperson gets involved. Yeah, I, I hate that one. That you, got doesn't hate, you got to hate something earlier. I hate this. One. <laughs> That's, That's fair. Because it's just not true. They may have, if there's a way to quantify it, they may have uh, done 56% of the things they need to do to have made the decision. But there's no way to go into somebody's mind and say, so how much of this decision have you made? I am totally with you. Totally. <laughs> I, just, I think it's the biggest piece of nonsense that exists. I think the lesson you take from it, though, the lesson right. I take from it, and I've written about this, is that, yeah, if the customer's in market, there's a sense of urgency that exists. And, you know, you talked about response time, so we may get back to that. I've written extensively about the importance of responsiveness uh, in selling. Because again, I think that's something that does have value to a buyer because, you know, I believe buyers don't set out to make a decision and say, you know what, we're going to spend as much time as we need to and invest as many resources as we need to, to make this decision. And we're going to pull people off their regular jobs, bring them in this buying committee. That's not what happens. Uh, absolutely. So if you can, if you can, a seller that helps the buyer get their job done <laughs> more quickly. And I, I define a buyer's job in my, in my new book. Uh, 
you know, buyers basically trying to do is quickly gather and make sense of the information they need to make an informed decision with the least investment possible of their time, attention, and resources. Yeah, I think that's fair. And if you're a buyer, a seller that can help them do that, well, that does have value to them. Okay, back to my 56% quote that you hate. Okay. <laughs> totally okay. <laughs> totally okay that you hate it. <laughs> the it's not the point that I, it's just this idea, this statistic that's floating around, but Jess, go ahead. The the point that I take away from it, which I believe a hundred percent, is that buyers do research before they talk to salespeople. Yes, absolutely. Right? <laughs> <laughs> down to down to researching the seller. Yes. Yes. And, uh, and so when you think about the different journeys that buyers could take, they, they always start in, I'm, I'm not talking to other salespeople. I'm just trying to figure out, is this something I'm going to, a problem I'm going to go solve or not? Yes. Am I going to go spend time on it or not? Yeah. And, and so I think of that as the upper left hand corner of the, of the quadrant. It's the, okay. it's the place where they're going to start and it's them making a will I decision without salespeople help. Mm-hmm. So now what do they do next? They could say, well, now let me go look at the alternatives. So without anybody help, without a salesperson being involved, they start looking at the different competitors that are out there. So let's imagine I'm going to go buy a car. I say, well, man, I just crashed my car. I need a new one. So I'm going to go shop for cars. And now I'm on BMW's website and Lexus's website and Audi's website. And, and so I'm, I'm researching all this before I ever go talk to a sales, because heaven forbid I go talk to a salesperson, right? right. I don't want to do that. Uh, and then eventually I said, it's time to go talk to a salesperson. And I dropped down. And the first time I talked to a salesperson, I've already decided um, I'm making a which one decision. I've already decided that I'm looking between these alternatives. Okay. And so the salesperson has to try to figure out quickly that I'm making a which one decision. They have to know that's the most price sensitive buyer. And, uh, and the sales process is really how are we different than other people and why should you like ours? Right. What's the value of our differentiation relative to our competitors? Yeah. On the other hand, some people, and usually these are executives or high-level people in our customers, they say, I have this problem. So they're in that top left box. They haven't talked to anybody. They've done a little research. They called their friend. Their friend said, oh, you should call Andy. They call Andy. And now Andy says, Oh yeah, yeah, let's, let's walk through your problem. Oh yeah. The problem is really that your salespeople aren't being as efficient over here. And, and we could look at how we might solve that. And he says, Oh great. I, I need, I need your help. Right. And he could do one of two things at this point. He could buy from you, which is awesome. And when we call that the trust journey, he just trusts you. He trusts however the referral was. Mm-hmm. Or he says, Andy, I, I greatly appreciate it, but I have to go look at alternatives. And he goes and looks at a few alternatives. Now, even in that case, you have the advantage because of the fact that you got to build the rapport. You made sure he knew that you understand his problems. Right. Right. And so you've got the catbird seed and he's less price sensitive. And, and, And I think a salesperson's job needs to be to recognize one of many jobs needs to be to recognize which of those three journeys our buyers are on and making sure they get the right information for what they're, what they're trying to get accomplished. Agreed. Yeah. And again, in my book, my new book, Sell Without Selling Out is, is yeah, I think there's this, <laughs> this problem that exists. There's sort of two paradigms that people sort of put train or socialize sellers in. And unfortunately the overwhelming one is, Hey, salespeople, 
your job is to go out and persuade somebody to buy your product. Now, if you think your job is just to go persuade somebody to buy your product, then, you know, understanding the problem, understanding the buyer's most important things, all these things sort of go by the wayside because it's, you know, sort of important, but you're really there all fundamentally to persuade them one or another to buy your product. Whereas I believe the job of a salesperson is to listen to the buyer, to understand the things that are truly most important to them in terms of the challenges they face and the outcomes they want to achieve, and then help them get that. And so, unfortunately, they were socializing training sellers more in this persuasion thing and this, this idea of uh, making the buyer feel understood, for instance. I had the story in my book is, is working for a startup, we won this huge deal we should I thought we had no no right to win, but we had, did win. And I asked the buyer, why us? And she said, this is the CEO of this large telecom company, she said, because you're the only ones that made us feel understood. I love that. And, and I'm going to say the words inherent to value and stop. <laughs> <laughs> well, but I, it, yes, it, but it was both, right? Because we, yeah, couldn't, absolutely. we couldn't have gotten to the inherent value as it related specifically to them if we didn't really understand them, the underlying issues, wow. like I said, the challenges and the outcomes, that's, their own desires and ambitions. That's absolutely right. Absolutely right. Yeah. So, so can well, I toss that? Well, I was going to say, to me, this, this is like, I've got this uh, diagram. I've got, that I've been starting to socialize more and more looking at just from a seller perspective is, is that, you know, we, in, in sales training, we sort of, we focus on training humans how to be sellers, but we don't focus on training sellers how to be human. And, <laughs> and we know, based on several points of research, that a significant percentage of the buyer's purchase decision, yeah, it takes into account, yeah, these other factors, but also heavily influenced by their experience with the human they're dealing with. Yep. And I see this. Two, you know, looking at it as the buyer perspective, it's this, it's this whole package. It's, it is the inherent value, but it's also how they're experiencing you as a seller as they go through this process. And these all combine to influence the ultimate choice the buyer makes. I've never thought to ask this question before, but Andy, I want to ask you a really hard question. <laughs> uh uh Yeah. Pon pontificate on the following statement. A great salesperson can sell ice to Eskimos. No, I don't think so. I mean, I think they're horses for courses. And there's some people in people's greatness is very situational in sales. So there's some people who succeed in some environments and not in others. And that's sort of the way the world works. So somebody could be great. But it doesn't mean they're a great salesperson. It doesn't mean they're a great salesperson for everything they would have, have the ability to sell or have the option to sell. Yeah. Okay. Because we always hear that phrase. And when you, yeah. when you said the word salespeople are there to persuade, that's what jumped into my mind. Oh, yeah. Right? No, I, it's again, like, I don't believe they are, but that's mm -hmm. unfortunately right. we train and socialize them. Right. Um, yeah, and, and if you think about it, a salesperson selling ice to Eskimos didn't listen for the problem. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> That's a very good point, right? Mm -hmm. um, all right. So just one last thing I was going to bring up because we had touched on it earlier is, you know, the, the person who asked you, does any data exist for justify your, the comment you made about buyers receive a reasonable quote and not wait for all requested quotes to come in. 
is, and I've written about this extensively, is this whole concept of satisficing. You familiar with that with Herbert Simon? Yep. yep. That's what that is. Yeah, I've experienced this throughout my career is that, that you know, people can read about this in my book. If they read more about satisficing Herbert Simon, Nobel Prize winner, came up with this theory of bounded rationality, uh, but said, you know, people generally will look for a solution until they find one that satisfies the requirements and suffices to meet their desired outcomes. And then they make a decision because they know that the marginal value of, of continuing to look for additional solutions, they don't find a solution that much better to justify the additional investment of time and effort. Yep. And so I often think of that as the cost of thinking, right? It, it costs us a lot to think about things and, and at some point in time, we just say, look, I know enough, right? right. I don't need to think about this anymore. Um, yeah. When I, as a salesperson, as I started and sales leader and so on, once I started understanding this, then I said, well, okay, well, there's certain milestones now that exist that I can sell to, to try to help the buyer get to that point first with me as opposed to anybody else. So I was conscious and, and trained people, you know, how do we front load these discussions and this discovery so that, yeah, we help the buyer understand more quickly. We build trust more quickly. We, you know, do our, let's say reach our understanding more quickly. You know, we can be the first of these various milestones. We can help the buyer get to the satisfice point faster. And it could be a deliberate strategy to do. Yeah. I think I'd never thought of it that way before. And I love that thought process. Yeah. Cause I, cause I think it fits really well um, with, with the way I think about it and with the way salespeople can and should behave. And should behave. So, exactly. Exactly. Mm-hmm. We'll have to get you a copy of my new book. It's the final chapter in the book. Lay it all out in that perspective. So, I'm sh- uh, sh- <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, we've run out of time, but Mark, this has been fantastic. Thank you for joining me. Uh, if people want to learn more about you and what you do, What's the best way to do that? Uh, you can always email me, mark at impactpricing.com. You can find me on LinkedIn. I I say yes to almost everybody. Uh, so if you send me a connection link, I'll say yes. And uh, and I put out tons and tons of free content. You do. Absolutely do. It's well worth for people to check out. So, Mark. Oh, and, yes, and wait, since someone's listening to this podcast, they probably might like other podcasts. And I have one called Impact oh, Pricing. Absolutely. Love to have you come join us. Promote promote your podcast. Yes, absolutely. So Impact Pricing. Okay, perfect. And how often does that go out? Uh, the We do an interview once a week and I do two very short ones uh, each week as well. Excellent. All right, Mark. Well, thank you so much. Andy, thank you. This has just been an absolute blast. It has been a lot of fun. So yeah, thanks for coming on and we'll do it again. Okay, friends, that's it for this episode. First of all, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen. I'm so grateful for your support of the show. And I want to thank our guest, Mark Stiving, for sharing his insights. Also, I want to thank you so much for investing your time with me today. Until next time, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone. 